Tocilizumab was recently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of wet AMD. But how does it affect patients with wet AMD who also have polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy? I'm Scott Krismanis. I'm Greg Notstein. And this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. Glenn Jaffe joins the podcast to discuss a planned sub-study in the Phase 3 Hawk trial that aimed to find out how patients with PCV and wet AMD respond to brolicizumab treatment. And as the FDA reviews a new drug application for abicapar, what can we learn from the Phase 3 trials Cedar and Sequoia now that the two-year data were released? Dr. Raul Karana details his presentation on that topic live from the BMC booth. Catch up on the breaking news from the podium at the AAO annual meeting in San Francisco. We're here on location to bring it to you. This podcast is brought to you by Genentech Ophthalmology. At Genentech, science is just the beginning of innovation. Together with the ophthalmology community, Genentech is transforming the treatment of retinal disease to give people the vision to live. To learn more, visit gene.com slash ophthalmology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash ophthalmology. Berlicizumab was recently approved by the U.S. FDA for wet AMD. It was formerly known as RTH258 and will be marketed under the name BioView. Researchers are still seeking to understand how brolicizumab affects polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy, or PCV, which may occur in patients who are diagnosed with wet AMD. Dr. Glenn Jaffe shared the 96-week results from the Hawk study, one of the two parallel phase three trials that evaluated brolicizumab in patients with wet AMD. Within the Hawk study was a planned sub-study that examined patients with PCV. Dr. Jaffe is the Robert Mockhammer Professor of Ophthalmology at the Duke Eye Center, where he is also the Chief of the Retina Division in the Department of Ophthalmology and is the Director of the Duke Reading Center that interpreted the images for this study. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. Could you please give us a quick overview of the structure of the Hawk trial? Sure. So patients were randomly assigned to either receive 2 milligrams of aflibercept or three or six milligrams of brolicizumab. And then they were initially dosed at the same interval, at monthly intervals for the first three visits, and then there was a head-to-head -head comparison through week 16. After that, the patients who were on a flibercept stayed on a flibercept every eight weeks. The people who were in, brolicis in the brolicizumab group, as a default, were treated every 12 weeks. And then if there was disease activity at pre-specified points, they dropped down to the eight-week dosing interval. To be clear, the six-milligram dose was approved by the FDA, correct? That is correct. Tell us a little bit about the population in the Hulk trial. So there were 152 Japanese patients, and we're now specifically talking about the subpopulation of patients that had polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy, which is the topic of our discussion. So there were 152 Japanese patients, and by the way, this was a planned analysis in this subgroup, and a really high proportion, almost 60%, had polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy as their form of neovascular AMD. And in Asians, that is a, a comparable or even higher than, what, than what's been reported before. And in the planned sub-study in Hawk, uh, when it came to visual gains for patients with PCV, what did you find? 
So what we found were that there were robust visual gains in the patients with PCV. The visual gains were similar across all the three different treatment groups at week 96, whether it was a flibercept or the two different brolicizumab groups. And uh, what was quite notable is that at week 48, about 75% of the patients were able to stay on the every 12-week dosing, and then by 96 weeks, about almost 70% of those patients who were on the 6-milligram brolicizumab were able to stay at that every 12-week dosing schedule. And now that's pretty big news when it comes to treatment burden. That is very correct, and it does, it bears repeating that what we're really trying to do is to reduce the treatment burden because these patients have to come in very frequently, otherwise not just to get examinations, but then to get injections. And not only the patients have to come in, but their family members have to come in. They have to take time off of work. And so to the extent that we can decrease those patient visits, decrease the family visits, that's a very big plus. Were there any anatomic findings that are worth mentioning? Yes. So there were several different anatomic findings of note. The first is that in general, patients had a significant reduction in their central subfield thickness. And that held whether they were in the brolicizumab 3 or 6 milligram group or whether they were in the aflibercept group. Overall, the reductions in thickness were a little bit greater for the brolicizumab groups. And then along with that, the we looked more carefully at the types of fluid and the patients who had either intraretinal fluid or subretinal fluid were examined and the patients who had sub-RPE fluid. And the patients who were given brolicizumab had a, an advantage in resolution of intraretinal and subretinal fluid and sub-RPE fluid relative to aflibercept. So an easier way to say it is that their, their retinas were drier on the whole compared to the aflibercept group. And what about safety? So the safety profiles overall were similar among the groups. There was a slight increase in reported episodes of inflammation, iritis, and uveitis by the investigators in the brolicizumab 6 milligram group, although the visual acuity in those patients, the visual acuity gain on average was actually equivalent to the group as a whole. And so those patients actually did quite well. And what is the take-home message here? So I think the most important take-home message, and keep in mind that this is a group of patients with polypoidal or PCV, the most important message is that it's reasonable to start treating these patients with monotherapy. And the corollary to this is that the results that were observed in the PCV group was reflected the overall group as a whole who also did quite well. So I think you could say that, or I could say that I would be comfortable treating PCV or treating more typical AMD with brolicizumab. And that, I think that, and one other important aspect, the take home message to this is that the people who were identified that could go to every 12 week dosing were identified early on in the study. So after the first time that they made it past that disease activity, if they were on every 12 weeks, 90% of the time throughout the 96 weeks after that, they could stay on that. So you can identify those patients who are likely to do well with every 12-week dosing pretty early on in the treatment course. Dr. Jaffe, thank you for speaking with us. You're very welcome.
This podcast is supported by Genentech Ophthalmology. Genentech works with the ophthalmology community to advance the understanding of serious eye disease and develop new technologies to transform care. Let's partner in doing more for patients. Learn how at gene.com forward slash ophthalmology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash ophthalmology. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently accepted the new drug application for Abicapar Pegol for the treatment of wet AMD. Similar filings have occurred with the European Medicines Agency. Dr. Raul Karana shared the two-year results from the Phase Three Cedar and Sequoia studies at the late-breaking paper session at AAO Subspecialty Day. Dr. Karana is a vitreoretinal surgeon with Northern California Retina Vitreous Associates and is an associate clinical professor of ophthalmology at UC San Francisco. Dr. Karana, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cedar and Sequoia were designed as parallel phase three clinical trials. That is correct. These were two global phase three double mass randomized control trials with identical protocols. Who was enrolled in these studies? Patients were enrolled or patients with neovascular age-related macular degeneration, and they were randomly assigned to one of three treatment arms. They could receive abicapar every eight weeks after three loading doses, abicapar every 12 weeks after two loading doses, or ranibizumab every four weeks. It's important to emphasize that the treatment regimens were not modified once the study was initiated. These patients were maintained in either the every 12-week arm or the every eight-week arm through the two-year study. And what were the endpoints of the study? The primary endpoint was stable vision at week 52, uh, and this was the primary endpoint of the clinical trial, which Abicapar met in the first year results. Both Abicapar every eight weeks and every 12 weeks met this pre-specified endpoint of non-inferiority. So year one is already in the books. What did you find at year two? Correct. So in this year's American Academy Ophthalmology meeting, I presented the year two data. And the data was very exciting because it showed that the initial visual gains we saw in the first year were actually maintained in the second year with a less frequent dosing regimen with both Abicapar-treated arms. In the Abicapar-treated arms, too, with every eight weeks and every 12 weeks, they maintained the visual acuity improvement seen in the first year. And they had the same improvements in retinal anatomy, which were very similar uh, to the ranibizumab-treated arms every month. Just to put things in perspective, in the Abicapar every 12-week arm, patients received only four injections in the second year versus 12 injections with the ranibizumab arm and had the same outcomes. So it's fair to say that Abicapar was not inferior to ranibizumab monthly treatment? Correct. What about the safety profile at year two? So the safety profile at year two was very important. We were very concerned about the intraocular rate of inflammation, which was seen in the first year. What we found in the second year was the rate was 0.8% in the abicapar every eight-week arm, 2.3% with the abicapar every 12-week arm, and 1% in the ranibizumab every four-week arm. The rates were very low and comparable between all three treatment arms in the second year. Let's back up for just a second. Can you give our audience a crash course in DARPINs? Correct. So uh, designed anchorin repeat proteins, or DARPINs, represent a novel class of protein therapeutics. They allow for the generation of small molecules with high binding affinities. Abicapar pegol is a clear reflection of that. In comparison to ranibizumab, it has a smaller molecular weight, a 90-fold higher binding affinity to VEGFA, and a longer vitreous half-life. Why is that higher binding affinity so important? 
Well, a bigger part was designed to give a longer duration of action. And it's a combination of not just of the higher binding affinity, which was 90-fold higher than ranibizumab, but the longer vitreous half-life and the smaller molecular weight. That combination is believed to give a bigger part a longer duration of action. So uh, we have the data, and that's great. But I want to know what the upshot is. What does this mean for patients with wet AMD, and what does it mean for the physicians who treat them? The upshot of this, of this study is this gives us another great option for our patients with macular degeneration. As we know, who take care of these patients, the disease is very variable. If we take, for, for instance, the outcome of 12 weeks, we have patients right now that can be treated with bevacizumab for 12 weeks. The second year of the VIEW clinical trials, 43% of patients with ranibizumab went every 12 weeks and 50% with a flibercept. And the recent Hawk and Harrier studies showed that nearly 45% of patients went 12 weeks in the Hawk study and 39% in the Harrier. So with our current set of treatments, we have about 40 to 50% of the time we can go 12 weeks. The benefit of Abicopar is that all the patients went 12 weeks. And to have that option for our patients is very helpful because these patients, there's a high treatment burden. And going 12 weeks can really minimize that treatment burden for our patients to optimize outcomes. And the studies really show that even on a quarterly dosing regimen, giving 10 treatments versus 25 over two years, you don't lose anything in terms of visual acuity, and you can have excellent visual acuity gains. Dr. Karana, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of New Retina Radio. Join us next time we're on the road or head to iwire.news and retinatoday.com to catch the latest headlines and analysis. Subscribe to the podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like what you heard. And tune in each Wednesday afternoon to iWire TV. Thanks for joining us.